0: The title of today's message is Broken Vows Renewed. It's found in the book of Hosea, chapter 2, verses 14 through 23. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, for the Spirit of God who guides us. We thank you for brothers and sisters who encourage us. We pray now that the words of Hosea might come alive in our hearts and minds, that we would see your will For our lives, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Sue will tell you that I'm a romantic at heart. (laughs) And that she's not. I like all that ooey, gooey stuff, you know. Looking into your sweetheart's eyes. Telling her how much you love her. And that you'll never desire another. Well, what happens if the one you love wanders off seeking the comfort and the arms of another? How do you woo your lover back to yourself? What would it take for you to speak to her heart once more? Would you take her to the ocean to watch the sun go down, to listen to the roar of the waves against the shore? Would you wine and dine her? at the nicest restaurant in town, perhaps Ruth's Chris. If you really want to be over the top, maybe you'll whisk her off on a Hawaiian getaway. The one thing that I'm quite sure of is that you'd never take your woman out into the desert. That's a place where the temperatures soar into triple digits, the tumbleweed blows across the landscape propelled by the hot winds, and you perspire uncontrollably. That is, unless you're from Weatherford, Texas. Maybe Mike Hall would like to give a personal testimony as to how he wooed Charlene. No? All right, then. Let's examine how Hosea went about winning back... His love. Our text is about renewed love between two estranged lovers. As you know, the prophet of God was writing about his failed marriage to Gomer. He writes at the prompting of the Lord, who uses his painful marriage as an illustration of the unfaithfulness of his people. Despite ratifying the covenant at Mount Sinai, the children of Israel chased after other gods, they wrongly believed that Baal was providing them the necessities of life, like water, bread, and clothing. Instead of thanking the Lord as the true source of their blessings, they gave all the credit and they thanked a man-made wooden idol called Baal. But the Lord, ever faithful, always merciful, had a plan. He would use Hosea's marriage to Gomer as an illustration of the spiritual adultery taking place amongst his people. So the people of Israel watched as the prophet of God tenderly and gracefully dealt with his wife of shame. They would see that the true God would also deal with them in the same way. You see, the Lord never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's in the business of being merciful, magnanimous, and forgiving, especially to those who don't deserve it. And for that, I am especially grateful, for I am the recipient of his grace and mercy. To show Gomer her need, think people of Israel, she is stripped of everything of her existence. All her material blessings, her religious observances, and even her dignity. This is done in order to reveal the underlying causes of her unfaithfulness. The discipline of Gomer, by her godly husband Hosea, mirrors the way in which the Lord will discipline his people, Israel, of the northern kingdom. Both have committed sins of adultery. Israel has done the unacceptable. Israel has done the unacceptable, she's forgotten God. But the pendulum was about to swing from one side to the other, from discipline to restoration, from the divorce court to the desert, from despair over past wrongs to hope for the future blessings. Just like one of Grandma's Hallmark movies, this story will have a happy ending. That swing or change in the plot takes place right here in the chapter that we look at today, chapter 2 in Hosea. This is about the restoration of faithless Israel to the Lord. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Hosea chapter 2. And if you don't, you can find this text on page 900, as Bud mentioned, of the Pew Bible. We will pick up in verse 14 where we left off last week. Here in this verse, we will see that Israel is figuratively, metaphorically stripped naked and then abandoned in the wilderness by God. In actuality, in reality, she's carried off into exile by the Assyrians. We will see her loving husband, God, approach her in the wilderness, seeking reunion. The Lord speaks to Israel through the kind words of his prophet Hosea. These are prophetic words. They speak of a future hope. The Lord will offer her forgiveness for her infidelities and restoration of the blessings that she has lost. So in verse 14, we see the third of the three therefores. If you were with me last week, I mentioned the first two. The therefore here signals the work of God on the behalf of his bride, Israel. Here is the vanquished lover's approach, which mirrors the approach Hosea makes to his wayward spouse, Gomer. The Lord says, I will allure her. I will allure her. Bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. You'll recall last week I said that no one ever understands how desperate life really can be until they've hit rock bottom. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel has hit rock bottom. The sovereign God of Israel has allowed her to be removed from the land of promise and taken to the wilderness, Assyria. He allows Israel to be taken out into the wilderness for the purpose of discipline. Discipline. Last week, as you'll recall if you were here, I spoke of the 13 I will statements employed by God to define this discipline which was inflicted upon sinful Israel. Here we find that same formula being used to introduce not discipline but six promises of future restoration. Each one of these promises will begin with the phrase, I will. Each reveals part of the plan of God's restoration of his lover to her rightful place. The first promise found here in verse 14 is, I will allure her. What in the world does that mean, I will allure her? Well, according to the dictionary, allure means having the quality of being powerful, mysterious, attractive, and fascinating. When I think of an alluring person, I think of a person who's very charming, someone who is tender, seductive, and action in speech. The Lord says that he will allure, he will persuade his people to change their minds about their behavior. This is an act of grace, precipitated by a Lord who cares about his lover. Think about it. Israel deserves nothing but punishment. Warren Wiersbe states in his commentary that our Lord never forces anyone to love him. The Lord allures or woos people just as he allures a lover to himself, just as he woos his beloved seeking her hand in marriage. You see, the Lord is appealing to Israel to separate herself from her illicit lovers. In the wilderness, she's able to concentrate on his words, He brings her in the wilderness, not to punish her, but actually to save her from her enemies, like Baal. He did this also with Israel, saving them from Egypt and bringing them into the wilderness. So leading her into the desert is not a punishment. It is a rescue. The Jewish people have have to immediately recognize what the Lord is doing. Just as he brought them out of the land of Egypt to save them, he now brings them out of the promised land into the wilderness once again in order to save them. But how does he do this? How will the Lord do this? The short answer is, as I've already allured to several times, that he will take them by exile into the land of the Assyrians. The Assyrian captivities, which will become the Babylonian captivity, Captivity for others. There is a near fulfillment of this prophecy, because this has not taken, happened yet for the people of Israel, and there is a far fulfillment of this prophecy. I will speak about that later. Another question is why. Why does the Lord take Israel out to the woodshed of the wilderness? Why does, why does he remove her from the land of promise, a place which flows with milk and honey? out into the lifeless, barren desert. Why? Well, according to this verse, it's for the purpose of him speaking to her. In Hebrew, the phrase literally says there, he will speak to her heart. So we've got the aggrieved lover, God, attempting to win back the love of his life, the desire of his life, Israel, by speaking to her heart. This time in the desert, then, is supposed to be where Israel is completely dependent upon God. The process will allow the Lord to walk his wayward wife through the process of restoration and renewal. It begins with his tender words spoken to her heart. Now please don't forget that Israel's been obstinate up to this point, just as Gomer has been obstinate. I don't give much hope for her listening to and receiving the appeal of the Lord in the wilderness. But again, the Lord's going to speak to her. And the Hebrew idiom that is used here, it says he will speak kindly to her. It's used in other places of the Bible. For me, for example, maybe you remember in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 13. Ruth said, I see I have found favor in your sight. Speaking to Boaz. My Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to me. The same words. The Lord's pursuit of Israel, despite her spiritual adultery, begins with Words of wooing. Alluring words. The second promise of God that are made to Israel is, I will give her, in verse 15. The question is what? What will he give her? Will he give Israel what she deserves, to be stoned to death, or something else? Well, let's look at the verse. I will give her vineyards, from there in the valley of Acre, as a door of hope. And she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Here's the second promise of God made to Israel. He's going to woo her by giving her vineyards. In Hebrew, I know this is a little technical, but this is an elliptical text, which implies that the vineyards will grow out there in the wilderness. Israel will receive part of the blessing of God out there in the outback. And the Lord will bless her despite her failures in spiritual adultery. This is the first step of the Lord alluring his people back to a right relationship. Where will this take place? Well, the vineyards, we know in reality, are where Israel is. And where is Israel during this wilderness experience? It's not going to be in the Sinai. Actually, it's going to be in Assyria. So what we have here, the flavor of this text, the Lord is saying is that he will give prosperity vineyards to his people as they are in captivity to the Assyrians. He will bless his people even in Assyria. But the far fulfillment of this, that is the near, is that the Lord will bless his people on their return to the promised land. She will be restored to her privileges and blessings that God intended for her. Next, Hosea does something that he did in chapter 1. He changes the meaning of a name in order to drive his point home. This time, it's not the changing of one of his children's name; It's the changing of a place. We read here of the Valley of Acor. Truth, truth is, most of us have no idea where that is or what the meaning of it is. If we knew our Old Testament history, we would know that a significant event took place in Akor. In Joshua chapter 7, you'll recall that the armies of Israel had surrounded the pagan city of Jericho, but they did not attack. They waited for the Lord to give them his command, and his command was an odd one. He said to them, march around the city one time a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to march around that same city seven times and then shout. Wow, what a strange command. And yet the people obeyed. And you know what the Lord did. When they shouted, he brought the walls of Jericho tumbling down. The Israelites then went up and over the wall into the fallen city. But they were told, one caveat, don't take for yourselves any booty. All of the precious items from there were to be given to the Lord. They were placed under a band called harem, originally, H-E-R-E-M. Later, it became to be called Corbin. The term Corbin means all is devoted to the Lord. Therefore, all the stuff found in this city wasn't supposed to be for the people, but it was to be devoted to the Lord. It was to be brought back to the priests of the Lord for their use. Today, believers, when they speak of a time of devotion, speaks of this time that's set aside exclusively and devoted to the Lord for his use. In the old dispensation, the deceitful perverted this idea of harem or corbin. All they needed to do was to declare something dedicated to the Lord, Corban, for his use, his, a person's money, animals, or the land, and it would be neither tithed nor taxed. Anything devoted, most holy to the Lord, but according to Moses, everything in Israel that is devoted to the Lord belongs to the Levites, because the Levites were not given a promised part of the land, part of the promised land, as the other tribes. So as always, religious hypocrites took a practice that was meant to honor the Lord, and they twisted it and turned it for their own evil purposes. So they used this practice of harem, or corbin, devotion to the Lord, as a way to shield their wealth and to be selfish and greedy. You'll recall in the Gospels that Jesus criticizes the paragon of righteousness, the Pharisees, for using Corban to not take care of their aging parents. Jesus called them hypocrites because they wouldn't take care of their parents in a nursing home. They willfully violated the fifth commandment, which says, honor your mother and your father. They twisted Corban for their own selfish reasons. So here they are in the valley of Achor. And Achan claims property that was meant for the Lord, and he took it for himself and he hid it under a tent. After that, a process took place in which the man was found out, judged, and punished by the Lord. Similarly, both Israel will be dealt with by God, and Gomer will be dealt with by Hosea for her sin, Israel's sin against God. Because Achan's sin took place in the Valley of Acre, it changed the name of that valley to mean the Valley of Trouble. The Valley of Trouble. The Valley of Trouble was a place of death and judgment. The result was that the next city, the Jewish army, was to take. I became a place of trouble and defeat. All of this brought great shame On the people of God. Not only Achan, but all of Israel. That tells us that the righteous must suffer with the unrighteous. But now the valley of trouble is about to have its name changed, its meaning changed, when God begins to work with Israel in the desert. And it's going to become, according to Hosea, a door of hope. A door of hope. The valley of trouble is going to become a door of hope. The prophet sees this, Isaiah, saying the valley of Acre will be a resting place for herds and my people who seek me. I find it very interesting that the restoration of Israel follows the same path that the Jewish people took after the exodus into the promised land. That's why all of the people in Israel would have recognized this immediately. They would have understood the meaning of this as Hosea penned it. As an aside, you're aware that there are three great enemies to the Christian life. There are three great enemies to our spiritual life. John tells us in his first epistle that these three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, some commentators, and I, I tend to agree with them, uh, see in this text, in this, this passage, this concept of what's taking place here, two of these enemies. The first enemy of the believer is this, in the city of Jericho uh, is the world. It's the place where the Lord defeats the enemy, the world, if you will, on his own. God wins the victory. He defeats the world system and not us. Victory over the world is not accomplished by our efforts, but by the power of God. All we must do simply is obey the Lord, walk around the walls, and shout. The second enemy of the believer is illustrated by Israel's attack on Ai. By the way, let me remind you that they never consulted with God before they attacked the city of Ai. They thought because it was so small and didn't have a standing army that it would be easy pickings. They'd gotten the weapons of the pagans at Jericho. I was very small, so what's the problem? We'll just go in and take it. They never prayed and talked to God. I represents the greatest enemy of the believer. I represents the flesh. I can do this on my own. I don't need the Lord. I can live the Christian life by myself. I can just pull myself up by my bootstraps. I don't want to bother the Lord with this. I can handle the enemy by my own strength. Well, Israel got her butt kicked at I. They had overwhelming numbers, superior weapons, and they were defeated by an enemy within their own ranks. The flesh. There's a great lesson for us here in the church. As an aside, Paul wrote about this, the value of the Old Testament and what it means to us today. And I'd like to give you two references for that that will be helpful for your future understanding of the Old Testament. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 15 and verse 4 saying about such illustrations as this, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that we might have... Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and uh, verse 11, he underscores this by saying, All of the old dispensation events were for this purpose, and he writes, These things happened to them, that's the Israelites, as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The Lord is telling us that in all of this stuff that happens in Hosea and the rest of the Old Testament is so that we might learn not to make the same mistakes. Watch what they did and learn. The defeat at I was caused by self-trust rather than trust in God. You see, it only takes one wayward soldier to bring a whole army down. The Valley of Trouble was a reality check for Israel. Now back to the book of Joshua in chapter 7. The great general Joshua falls on his face and he cries out to God after the defeated eye, Why, Lord? Why? Why did we have to suffer this defeat? And you know what the Lord says to him? Joshua, get up and know that Israel has sinned. Deal with this sin, and then you'll have the victory. So Joshua, they confront Achan, punish him, and the victory is achieved. For us to have victory over the flesh in our lives, we must trust in God and do things his way and realize that there's always a door of hope opening for us. Being honest with the Lord about our lives is the first step in this process of restoration. Restoration. Gomer and Israel need to be honest with God. And then when the victory comes, we will sing a new song. A song of victory. That brings me to the second portion of this text, which is really a prophecy about the end times. Hosea divides this second prophecy into three parts. Each part begins with the English phrase, in that day or on that day. Day, depending on your English text. I believe the phrase, in that day, is a technical term. It points the reader to a time that is to come that we all know as the end times, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That time will include the tribulation, the great tribulation, and the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. In a sense, this prophecy is a prediction, not in the sense of any specific day or things that will happen. Rather, it's a reaffirmation to Hosea's ancient readers that the Lord is always acting on the behalf of the people of Israel. This focuses on what will happen To them and to future Israelites. For them, they are facing exile to Assyria. And this is a door of hope. For Israel in the church age, this is a door of hope, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a renewed relationship in both affirmations of the prophecy near and far. Now the Lord speaks to his people individually and corporately in this prophecy. And in verse 16 we read, It will come about in that day, circle that, declares the Lord that you will call me Isha and will no longer call me Balai. The first part of this prophecy is addressed to individual Israelites. In this day Jews will call the Lord Ishi. That is, when they return from exile to Assyria and when they enter into the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Hebrew word Ishi" means "my husband," rather than the Hebrew word used, uh, secondly, Bali," which means "my master or my Lord." Both terms were used by Israelite women speaking to their spouses. The first Ishi is a term of endearment. It speaks of the closest woman a, the closest relationship a woman can have with a loving man. The other speaks of a relationship of servitude. my Lord, my master. Well as you could guess here, there's a play on words going on. There is a play on words going on. now when you read the text, you probably don't see that that's why you need teachers to point this out they were cast out into the wilderness, they were taken into exile into Assyria because they worshiped Baal, the Lord using the term Baal, my servant, my master, as a play on words. He's saying that he is to be exclusively worshipped as my loving husband, not as master or lord as Baal required. When the individual Jew is saved during the millennial reign of Christ, they will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is their loving husband, Ishi. For all Israel will call on him, Ishi, my husband, and not master or lord as Baalai. And in fact, that name is so grievous to the Lord that it will be removed from their consciousness as we shall see. The Mosaic law writes, be on guard. Don't mention the name of other gods. Nor let them be heard from your mouth. In Zechariah, he writes, it will come about in that day. It will come about in that day. There's that technical term again. That I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. You see, a true love of the Lord leads a believer to reject any kind of false worship of Baal. His name will even be removed from the lips, the mouth of Israel. All traces of this evil cult must be removed, says the Lord. It reminds me of what Jesus said in the New Testament about believers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Many who will say to me, on that day, Lord, Lord, we do not prophesy in your name, uh, we do prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare them to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The point here is that there is great meaning in names. The name of the Lord is holy and not to be profaned or mixed with other gods in worship. Let me just say this right now. Allah is not God. The Mormon God is not our God. All other religions corrupt the name of our God by making it, by defining it in other ways. We live in a time where truth no longer matters. But to be saved, one must know the truth about this name, that Jesus Christ is the one and only way that you can be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth eternally matters. Now, many claim to speak for God today. They claim to have great insight into the Almighty. But their words do not match up with biblical truth And must be rejected. So the buyer must beware. And in verse 17, the Lord says, I will remove, I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth, that's Israel, so that they will be will be mentioned by the names no more, by their names no more. Do you see how important the name of God is? Here we see the third promise of God made to Israel he says I will I will remove what is it that the Lord will remove from his people the simple answer is the name of the false gods why how the folks have become so comfortable living next to pagans in their community that they have accepted all of this without thinking The instructions of God to Israel as they entered in the land were simple. Drive out all the pagans from the promised land. Drive the Canaanites out. And what did they do? Instead, they played the nice guy. And they allowed the Canaanites to stay. Oh, don't bother with them over there. They're not hurting us. Just let them stay. And they became comfortable living next to their pagan neighbors. And they began to adopt their ways. They began to adopt their dress. They began to adopt their lifestyles. I see that in the Christian culture today. Believers look like their pagan neighbors. Believers act like their pagan neighbors. Believers even dress like their pagan neighbors. In Hosea's day, the worshiping of Baal, the worshiping of Baal, the worshiping of Baal required that you get piercings and tattooing. You see in Middle Eastern pagan cultures like those found in Egypt Babylon, Canaan, Assyria, and even in Jewish cultic practices, people tattooed themselves. They did this as part of their worship of the god Baal. They would tattoo themselves on their hands because they thought it gave them power, the power of Baal. Now, the, the scriptures speak clearly to this. When the children of Israel left Egypt... God said to them, in Leviticus chapter 19, in verse 28, You shall not make any cuts, that's a tattoo, in your body, nor make any tattoo marks on yourselves, for I am the Lord. I've been asked about this practice of tattooing, body art, if you will, by people again and again, and I'm going to give you the straight scoop this morning from my biblical studies over the years. I'm not asking anyone to agree with me, let me underscore that, you don't have to agree with me, but I'm asking you to listen and to appreciate what the scriptures say. It's undeniable fact, just go look it up on my Bible, Google. That tattooing originated in the practices of paganism and demon worship. Baal worship, shamanism, mysticism, heathenism, heathenism cannibalism, and all other pagan beliefs have tattooing. Tattooing has never, ever been connected with the worship of Jesus Christ. The only time in the history of all of Christianity where tattooing has appeared is among the devotees today of, of Christian post-modern society. Post-modern society and its form of Christianity is characterized by lukewarm, carnal, disobedient, Laodicean-type believers. All who want to be like the world around them. In its varied manifestations, the so-called church today has folks who are reverting back to pagan practices that God said were verboten. What people call good today, God calls evil. And what God calls evil, men call good. Let me remind you that the devil is the is the God of this world, and clearly his agenda is to deceive believers, especially in these last days. The facts are clear. Body art, whether it be tattooing, piercings, are all connected to the art of bloodletting that began back in Egypt. This bloodletting has its roots in pagan worship of the sun and of animals and other things. These practices are so entwined with idolatrous worship that they cannot be separated. So, what is next for the wider church? I'm going to get a tattoo because I can write a biblical verse on my skin and use it as a means of... Starting a conversation, what's next? We're going to start using Ouija boards, because they're cute and fun. In my opinion, believers should remove the body art of the false guards from them, false gods from them. They are making a very profound statement when they mar the canvas that God gave them, called their body. They are saying that the Lord did not create them perfect and beautiful. What you are really saying is that you can do something to improve what God made. I'm better than the creator. I'll put a tattoo on myself. Well, let me just say this. And I mean this from my very heart. I don't care if you have a tattoo. It doesn't matter to me. I'm just teaching you what the scripture says. But some people try to justify them for all sorts of reasons, like I said, as conversation starters. Well, if you want a conversation starter about Jesus, why don't you carry around a 10 foot cross with you? That'll get people's attentions. Now, don't turn me off here. Listen to what I have to say next. Found in the New Testament is the believer's standard of practice of dress and behavior. Now, it's true there's no mentioning of the word tattoo or piercing in the New Testament, but there is a principle that's found in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, where Paul writes, Women, adorn yourselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly garments. Here's the biblical principle that's embedded within this text. To dress like the pagan world, which always dresses to draw attention to self, shows that you have rejected Christ's authority over your life. Pagans love to draw the attention to themselves. What's the first thing that someone says to you when they get a tattoo? Look at my tattoo. Look at my new hairdo. Look at my diamond ring. It violates what God says. Don't draw attention to yourselves, but adorn yourselves on the inside. Not with braided hair, not with gold or pearls, but you must be modestly and discreetly dressed. Women, and by extension men, are to adorn themselves modestly and discreetly. So ladies, don't let your your breasts hang out for every male to oogle. I don't care what the fashion of the day is. It displeases God. Ladies, don't wear bikinis on the beach so that every man can see what God made and lust after it. You know and I know that the world is over-sexualized. Common decency is gone. Standards have disappeared. And when we follow the practices of the world, we fall right into the hands of the devil. Now the second part of this prophecy has to do with corporate Israel. In the next three verses, we find some of God's working in the land of Israel during the millennium. Verse 18 says, again, using that key phrase, In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things on the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. Here we find a covenant or a promise made by God to his children Israel in, that will come to fruition in the future. There's a covenant being made here Between two. We make these kinds of agreements all the time. There are two kinds of these agreements. The first is when two people come together and they agree on a price. For example, you make a covenant when you buy a house or a car. But there is another kind of covenant, and that's a covenant from a sovereign to his subject. That's what happens to us when Obama issues executive orders from on high. This is the type of covenant made by God that he's going to do something for Israel with no strings attached. What did Israel have to do for this promise to come true? Nothing. The promise was made by God and would be kept by God with no strings attached. This was a renewal of their vows. But it's made by the Lord only to his partner, Israel, his sweetheart. He's whispering sweet nothings in her ear, in or on that day. Following the Lord's setting up of his earthly kingdom, there will be peace on earth. That's what verse 18 is basically saying. But there are two different kinds of peace, two different realms in which this peace will happen. There is the peace on earth between man, and then there's peace on earth with the world of nature, the animal kingdom. No longer will anyone be eaten by a bear in New Jersey. Just happened last week. Did you know that believers are the greatest environmentalists in the world? Not the greeners. We as Christians are green through and through because we have been given the earth as stewards of it. What makes us different from the granola eaters around us is that we love mankind and they hate mankind. We love people, especially the Jewish people. They hate them. We love God's world and his people, but they only love the earth and worship it. We exalt men over animals, but we would never do harm to them. They will do harm to mankind. But we do not use the world that God made for the benefit of ourselves, but for the benefit of all. We don't hug Trees, we hug one another. We don't think that people are the problem, as they do. We think that the world is fit to give the solutions to the problems of people. We don't kill babies, as they do, and love and save whales. They want to improve. Improv- imp- impoverished California farmers in order to, take, to take, save one tiny fish who feeds on feces while putting all sorts of human beings out of work. We are the true environmentalists. Secondly, the coming of the king, after the coming of the kingdom, there will not only be peace between Israel and the animal world, but there will be peace between Israel and its enemies, Jesus Christ is not only God over nature, but he's God over men as well. During this time, the swords will be beaten beat to plowshare, and there will be peace on earth and goodwill among men. When her relationship is renewed with the Lord and Israel, there will be peace. Peace between kingdoms of men and kingdoms of animals. This wonderful promise of peace during the millennial kingdom is seen in many passages in the Old Testament spoken by the prophets. Let me just share quickly with you two from Ezekiel and Isaiah. They write, The bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. He will judge between the nations. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The wolf will lie down with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. I will make a covenant, says the Lord, of peace with them so that they may live securely. I will make them a blessing. The tree of the field will yield its fruit And the earth will yield its increase, and they will be secure on their land. They will know the Lord, that I am God, and that I have broken the bars of their yoke, and have delivered them from the hands that have enslaved them. Now in verse 19, we find the fourth promise of God made to Israel for the future. I will betroth you. We see this wooing of Israel by the Lord in the previous verses. He's taken them out into the wilderness and allured them, and now they will yield to him. In verse 19, it says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and in compassion. That word betrothed is an important one. It's used three times in this verse. It's spoken of a... Groom or a male courting a young maiden. God's intentions from the very beginning was not to get rid of Israel, but to win her back for himself. This restoration is described as a betrothal. It's a new beginning, a fresh start, done without rehashing of all the previous sins committed. They will return to their days of courtship, betrothal. As you know, engagements in ancient times were nothing like the contemporary practices of Western society today. Under the Mosaic law, an engaged, a betrothed couple were thought of as though they were legally married. When the groom and the father's bride agreed on a dowry, it sealed the deal. The betrothal of Israel, notice back in the verse, to me, says the Lord, came at a very steep price. He gives five different gifts as his betrothal betrothal dowry. These gifts are showered upon his chosen one. Let's look at those gifts really quickly. The first of the gifts is righteousness, which comes from the Hebrew term Siddiq. Then there's the gift of justice, the Hebrew word mispat. These words tell us that God is a warm and generous husband whose greatest desire is for the betterment of his chosen one, that he is a fair and just and loving partner who forgets the past. The third gift given by the groom to his beloved is the gift of loving kindness, which is the Hebrew term hesed, the most used term in the Bible to describe God. It's translated into the New Testament as grace, or the unmerited favor of God. The Lord is also giving her the gift of compassion, which is the Hebrew term ramen. Remember, it was used of the name of one of Hosea's children. It is a gift which guarantees their relationship will never be disrupted again. The Lord showers these gifts upon his lover. These gifts are more precious than any gold or silver she could receive. These are the gifts of God to her. In verse 20, we find the fifth gift, gift when he says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. The word betrothed, again, used three times here in these two, word, two verses, speaks of a deep and intense love between lovers. Some have suggested that the number three actually points to the three persons of the Trinity. Well, I don't know about that, but I do know the Lord loves the Jewish people, and he will be faithful to her. That's the Hebrew word imunah, and it tells us of an agreement made between two that is based on Grace. The Bible says faithful is he who calls you and he will bring, bring it to pass. Let us hold fast this confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Israel could trust her husband Esha, the Lord, because he's not like her. He's faithful. He keeps his promises. If she will embrace these gifts, she will know his trustworthiness. And then she will know the Lord. Then you will know the Lord. Remember Seinfeld? Yada, yada, yada. You remember that? That's the word know in Hebrew. Yada. Here, the Lord says that Israel will recognize, know, his love and his authority in his life. You see, knowledge is not based on mere mental consent but applies a change of mind that leads to change behavior. In the future, all Israel will know the Lord. Now the last part of this prophecy is found in verses 21 through 23. It's used to make a point about what will happen in the millennial kingdom in that day. It will come about. In that day that I will respond, declares the Lord, I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. Here we see the I will statement and the Lord says, I will respond. This is the fifth promise of God made to Israel about the future millennial kingdom. And in these verses, there's a conversation taking place between the heavens and the earth, between God and all that he has created. He's saying that these... Entities will respond to him and his love, and they will create the blessings that Israel will enjoy. In that day, the earth will respond with grain, with new wine, and with oil, and they will respond just like Jezreel. We don't really get it when we just read this real quickly, but there's like a call and answer going on here, calling and an answer going on here between the heavens and the earth. There's a call and a response. There's a cycle, in other words, that's going on here that produces These blessings upon the earth through the agriculture of grain, wine, and oil. The name Jezreel is, of course, the name of Hosea's firstborn child. And if you'll recall from two weeks ago, that name Jezreel means God will either scatter or God will sow. Here it's used again figuratively. It's being used of the regathering of the Jewish people back to the land of blessing in the millennial kingdom. Jezreel, I will scatter or I will sow or I will regather is the idea. God, the ultimate source of all blessings on earth, will regather his bride, Israel, together. And I will sow her for myself in the land, regathering. I will also have compassion on her, who has not obtained compassion from Baal is the idea and I will say to those who are not my people you are my people and they will say you are my god here we find the sixth promise of God made to Israel I will I will sow her where in the land there again is a play on words going on here that you cannot see in English as I said Lo-Ramim is the name of Hosea's firstborn son that means my people, and God will say that you are my Ramamam, my people, and the people will say you are our God. No longer will they be rejected, no longer will they be Baal followers, but they will be his people. But as you know, but as you know, the Jewish people are not God's people today. They are not his people, and he is not their God. But that will happen in the millennium. Okay. Let me close with this. There was a cheerful little girl of five who had beautiful golden curls. As she waited for her mother at the checkout counter, she saw a circle of glistening white pearls in a box. And she said, oh, mom, mommy, can I have them, please? Mommy, can I have them? Quickly, her mother, quickly her mother checked the back of the little foil box and saw that it was... $2. $2. I really want them, Mom. Can I have them? I'll buy them. I'll buy them myself. I'll do extra chores around the house, and I'll give you my birthday money that I get from Grandma next week. She always gives me a new dollar bill. Well, her mother bought them, and as soon as Jenny got home, she emptied her penny bakes bank counted out 17 pennies, and after dinner, she did more than her share of chores, and she went to her neighbor's that very night and asked if she could pull weeds. On her birthday, Grandma did give her the new dollar bill, and at last she had enough money to purchase the necklace from her mother. Jenny loved her pearls. They made her feel all grown up. She wore them everywhere she went, to Sunday school, to kindergarten, and even to bed. The only time Jenny ever took off her pearls was when she went swimming or took a bubble bath because Mommy said that if they got wet, they would turn her neck green. Jenny had a very loving father who tucked her in every night. He would stop whatever he was doing, come upstairs to her room, read a story, pray with her, and then ask Jenny, Do you love me? She would always answer, Oh, yes, Daddy. You know that I love you. Then give me your pearls. Oh, Daddy, not my pearls. You can have Princess the White Horse from my collection. She's my favorite, but you can have her. That's okay, honey. Daddy loves you. Good night. Then he would kiss her gently on the cheek and say good night. A week later, after the story, Jenny's dad asked her again, Do you love me? Daddy, you know I love you. Then give me your pearls. Oh, Daddy, not my pearls. You can have my baby doll, the brand new one up there I got for my birthday. She's so beautiful, and she's got such a beautiful blanket and sleeper, but it's okay. That's all right, dear. God bless you. Daddy loves you. And he kissed her goodnight on the cheek. A few nights later, when Daddy came up into the room, Jenny was sitting on her bed with her legs crossed. And as he came near to her, he could see the tears rolling down her cheek. What's wrong, Jenny? What's the matter? Jenny didn't say anything, but she lifted up her hand to her daddy. And when she opened it, there was her little pearl necklace. And with a quiver, she finally said, here, Daddy, these are for you. With tears gathering in his own eyes, Jenny's dad kindly reached out with his hand and took the dime store necklace with one, and with the other hand, he reached into his pocket and pulled out a blue velvet case with a strand of genuine pearls and gave them to Jenny. He'd had them all the time. He was just waiting for her to give up her dime store stuff so he could give her the genuine treasure. Let me ask you, is there something in your life that you're holding on to? Not willing to give up to receive the greater gifts of God that He has for you? Your Heavenly Father loves you. Your father loves you. Your daddy loves you and wants to bless you. But you have to give up all your false gods. You have to give up to that which you're holding on to, which clenched fist. You know, there's a powerful attraction between the beautiful and wonderful things that are made here on earth that are so bad for us. But God wants to replace those with His gifts. He loves you so much. He desires you to give those things up and to receive his blessings. So let me ask you, what's preventing you? Why are you holding on to the world's values? Why are you holding on to that which the world says is good? Reach out and take the greatest gift that God has for you. He's wooing you to himself. He's alluring you. He wants you to do so. He's speaking tenderly to your heart right now today through his word. There are three things we should gather from this text that God speaks kindly and gently to our hearts, but he's not going to force us to do his will. Secondly, the Lord promises a great hope, an open door, a time when security and peace will be for us. And finally, he promises us again and again that he loves us, he cares for us, and that there's always the opportunity for a new beginning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for Hosea, his life, his travails, his marriage, Lord, that's such an illustration for us of spiritual unfaithfulness. Help us, Lord, to purpose in our hearts on this very day. Help us to say in our hearts and minds, commit them to the Lord Jesus Christ. His lordship in our lives. Help us to give up that which we hold on to. For his glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.